0: Welcome to First Up. This is Rapa Wednesday, the 23rd of November. Coming up this morning, we get the latest from Indonesia, where the scale of a 5.6 earthquake is beginning to unfold. What does it take to be the world speed golf champ? A New Zealander. We speak to Jamie Reid. Gale squalls, thunderstorms, gnarly weather, trees falling over. Philip Duncan has all of it for you. And an 11-year-old leukemia survivor, Lucia Hurst, uh, who was gifted Ruby 2 his World Cup Winners Medal says that she's been sleeping with it under her pillow.
1: She had like a lolly necklace on, so I thought I was just <laughs> gonna get like a thing of a lolly, <laughs> and then she gave me the medal.
0: Well,
2: how did you react to that?
1: So I started crying.
0: Kia ora koutou. welcome to First Up, I'm Nathan Rarere, we begin this morning with news from across the Tasman, and uh, high atop the towers in Brisbane, it is Pam Corkery who's with me, kia ora, Pam, how are you? Very
3: well, high atop, high atop, I'm, <laughs> I'm woozy, yes.
0: <laughs> there as well. Hey now tell me this, there is a, a lot of interest, we're going to navel gaze into the media here because it's all quite interesting uh, in Australia at the moment, tell us about the editor-in-chief of The Australian
3: Well, he is the one, the Australian, sorry, I was leaping to crikey. Um, Chris (laughs) Dore, who I remember from years ago, I think I worked with him. He's a senior in the Murdoch Empire, and he is the uh, editor-in-chief, or was, of News Corp's national masthead, The Australian. Now, he was pushed after making lewd comments towards a woman at the Wall Street Journal conference in California. He was reportedly drinking. This is a big deal. He's very senior.
0: Wow. And so... Yeah.
3: so <laughs> a few it, beers and a bit of a yarn and there you go.
0: Yeah, and then he's what? So he's, he's gone...
3: Yeah, he's gone. He's um, organised, I think, quite a deal. But um, they actually lied to the staff and said, no, no, he he wanted to go. But then other newspapers have reported what actually happened.
0: Oh, that interesting Uh, stuff. Now, award shows are always interesting places, Pam. I've been around some very interesting award shows in my time. I'm sure you have too. Uh, Can you please tell New Zealanders about the editor-in-chief of the independent publication, Crikey?
3: Oh, this is fabulous. So the The editor of Crikey, which is, funnily enough, being sued by Murdoch at the moment, is taking leave of his position um, and seeking assistance for his behaviour after heckling the winners of the most coveted, this is so coveted, it's not a cliche, Australian Journalism Award, the Walkleys. Now, Peter Frey, Crikey editor, he's going to use the period of leave to deeply reflect on my actions and seek appropriate assistance. He called. Hey, he heckled most of the winners all night, saying, well, what about us? What about us? So that's good. He's got time for reflection. And two journalists at Channel 9 um, have been stripped of their Walkley Award after they defamed a former federal MP. The journals alleged he had taken a lewd photo of a woman in her workplace without her knowledge of consent. Apparently, took the snap, they say allegedly mm. he took the snap up her skirt. No, we saw the footage. He didn't.
0: Right, right. <laughs> 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 Journalism rocks, man. Yeah, it does. Pam, uh, we um, we have to go. Unfortunately, but I'll tell you under a, a story like that that actually happened at an award show I was at where. A, New Zealand comedian uh, was also doing similar things. There she is, Pam Corkery, out of Australia, who it's always a pleasure to speak to, but we have to go to news from Indonesia now where aftershocks of Monday's earthquake are still being felt. The epicentre was in Tianjur in West Java and the death toll has risen to 268. The ABC's Ann Barker is in Indonesia and she told me about the scale of the disaster.
4: I mean, look, Nathan, there, there's just a, a massive search going on for the people who are still missing and feared trapped or, or dead under rubble of the many houses that have been flattened here at Chandura and, and the area around. I mean, the, the number of people missing sort of varies between about 30 to 150 Uh, Certainly there are a lot of people missing, but I think there's a recognition that some of those people probably are already dead and perhaps bodies have already been, you know, taken to hospitals or to morgues, but they just haven't been sort of identified as somebody who was missing. So that's something that might take several days or even longer to establish. You know, there are a lot of people, not only do you see these flattened houses everywhere around, uh, you do see a lot of families now who are living under plastic sheeting. They're they're sort of refugees on their own land, if you like. They can't live in their own homes. Even those homes that are still standing, they're they're too scared that they may fall in in the many aftershocks that are happening. So there's a lot of uh, refugees, if you like, people who don't know where they're going to go in the longer term. Uh, They're living under sort of makeshift tents at the moment or in evacuation shelters, but that's something that they mostly recognised they will need to uh, to resolve in the days or weeks ahead.
0: And New Zealanders are familiar with earthquakes, you know, uh, a 5.6 isn't normally uh, rated as being very, very high. So can you explain to us what's it like there as far as housing or topography or something like that goes, which which leads to such a high death toll?
4: Yeah, I mean, you're right. Even when I saw the original, you know, number the other day of 5.6, typically that's, you know, that's very common in Indonesia. Almost every day there would be an earthquake, perhaps over five. And it's very rare for this kind of uh, quake to cause such devastation. Normally, it's well over six, maybe the high sixes or more. Uh, but I think it's it's a combination of poor housing in this particular town, Cianjur, Like, it's quite interesting that, you know, even in the areas beyond Tianju, even though we felt the the quake very strongly in Jakarta, there was no deaths in Jakarta, no damage that I'm aware of because the buildings are so much better uh, built, if you like. At Tianju, there are a lot of houses. It's very common, the sort of houses that have collapsed. It's, they're small, one-storey concrete homes that, you know, when they're standing, they can look quite grand. People can have quite a nice house and live in that. But it seems that they've been built without proper sort of beams or supports. You know, a couple of people have pointed out to me that that house there didn't have any metal sort of supports around the, you know, the, the roof or the structure or whatever. And that's one of the reasons why they've uh, collapsed. I mean, that's not to say that, you know, that the earthquake itself, the epicentre was probably directly below this area. And, uh, you know, so 5.6 can cause devastation. It was a very shallow quake and that means that it's much closer to the surface and and that was obviously a factor as well. But I think the soil, it's very soft soil in this area. It's very hilly and combined with that poor housing. I think that's really the reason why we're seeing such a high death toll.
0: And the horrible thing is, you know, you've got crews going there. They're still searching for people. And it's not like it all just finishes tomorrow night or anything. Then you've got the part with what about you know things like other sorts of relief like food or you know ways to get water or what have you can you tell us about you know is the response coming from other regions perhaps to help and what do you expect for the coming week or so
4: Look, I mean, there is a, a good response. I mean, the problem is that one of the main highways that comes down from Jakarta, 75 kilometres away, that, that there's been a lot of landslides in that area. It's quite mountainous and very hilly, and so there have been some very substantial landslides. It is prone to landslides in that area, so a lot of supplies have had to be airlifted in on helicopters. There were some cargo trucks that arrived apparently this morning with a lot of food and medicines and blankets and so on. I mean, you know, the whole... Hospitals here, they might be perfectly adequate in normal times, but when you have a disaster like this, they just can't cope with the sheer number of people. You know, typically you would see people perhaps sent to hospitals further afield normally, but because of the roadblocks caused by those landslides, that's been difficult. So the hospitals here are overwhelmed. There's, uh, it's, it's difficult to get people out. The roads are blocked. The traffic is very clogged. And so a lot of things are coming in by helicopter, You know, I'm sure there are towns further south and and east that are also sending things. But that's something, too, that, you know, that's going to take time to clear those uh, landslides, clear the roads and, and, you know, get that traffic moving again so that a lot of uh, heavy equipment can come in more easily to help the search and the rescue effort as well.
0: That's the ABC's Anne Barker in Indonesia. Thirteen and a half... Yeah, past five uh, uh, here at First Up on RNZ National with me, Nathan Rarity. Well, there's scenes of jubilation in the Middle East at the moment. Saudi Arabia 2, Argentina 1. And as uh, my friend Corey said, that's like uh, the All Blacks losing to uh, Saudi Arabia. Pretty much, it's uh, Alex Baird is with us in Doha. Uh kia ora, Alex. How are you? Oh, morning, eh? I've just seen some footage of some Saudi Arabian fans so happy, one of them rips the door off his house and he just goes, "Yay!" and just throws it out onto the street because he's still happy. Will the people of Qatar, will they be happy that Saudi Arabia has won or not, not really because it's close rivals?
5: No, absolutely. We actually saw the Emir himself with a Saudi flag draped around him, which was just a few years ago during the blockade would have been unimaginable, but it really shows that those ties have started to heal. Um, I think also as you're driving around, you're seeing people waving Saudi flags out their doors. Um, I wasn't too far from one of the stadiums, and you could hear people, you know, you could hear their screams over the top of the city. So I think this is, as you said, a major deal. It's like the All Blacks losing. Um, Argentina hadn't lost a game for their last 36 games, and then in comes on their very first game of the World Cup. In comes Saudi Arabia. And they beat them. So I don't think anyone saw this coming, but a huge moment um, for Saudi in this part of the world in terms of the World Cup.
0: Yeah, and if you are a fan of soccer football, that the second goal that Saudi Arabia scored is amazing. It is really good. Anyway, uh, let's, let's have a look at uh, some law here being, wow, the law being dished out in Turkey. A televangelist there getting quite a large sentence, Alex.
5: Yeah, so... Um, a man by the name of Adnan Oktar, a televangelist who called the closest women to him uh, kittens, has been sentenced to over 8,000 years in prison, which is kind of unimaginable when we think about the New Zealand justice system. So safe to say I don't think he'll ever be getting out. But this guy was quite a piece of work. Um, even when he was, was was talking about the kind of what he saw as a bit of a campaign out to get him, he said it was a British deep state lie against him. Um, He was done on a number of charges including um, leading a criminal gang, engaging in political espionage, sexual abuse of minors, rape, blackmail, he did all the worst sorts of things. And he was kind of best known I think outside of the country because he had these pretty extreme views on evolution. Um, and he thought that the, the evolution was the root of all global terrorism. And he would unsolicitedly um, send out his books every time he wrote a new one to the major libraries around the world. Really odd guy, but I think it's safe to say that his tele televangel- days are over um, for the next eight thousand or so years.
0: Oh, you know these bloody woke courts are like now. Alex Hill only served four thousand years of that, will not he? Eh? Hey, maybe out on the streets oh. again. Hey, uh, tell us, what's the, what's, what is the latest uh, happening in Iran?
5: Yeah, so actually quite interestingly, it's intersected with the World Cup because we had Iran play their first um, game yesterday in the World Cup. And during the national anthem, not a single member of the Iranian football team sang. And you also had some people protesting outside. You had chants going on. Um, basically saying, remember Masa Amini, for those of you who haven't remembered, um, these protests that have been going on for well over two months now in Iran started when a young 22-year-old woman, Masa Amini, died in the custody of the morality police for not wearing her hijab correctly. Now, these have spiraled. Almost 16,000 people have now been arrested, more than 400 people killed. You've now had the first death sentences being handed out as well. We've had five death sentences so far. Um, Interestingly, though, over the last week, this coincided with the um, anniversary of another set of uh, protests that took place in Iran in 2019. These ones were over the price of fuel, so you actually had a three-day strike taking place at the same time as the Masa-Armeni protests were taking place. And as I said, a number hundreds of people have been killed, dozens of those were children, and there is a practice in Iran when someone dies, 40 days after their death. Is basically when you go out and when you, when you really end that mourning period and so every 40 days after a protester dies you essentially have more protests compounding what's already happened you're seeing more and more of a violent crackdown by the Iranian state you're not seeing any letting up they're not giving anything to these protesters and you know what as we keep saying week to week these protests are not going away but it's getting harder and harder to see how this is all going to end and it's more just a wait and see and we can hope only that more people
0: don't die. Yeah, thank you very much, Alex. I, I noticed that, obviously, we've spoken about uh, England football, uh, the captain Harry Kane saying, we will wear the rainbow armband, and then the next day, whoops, no, I might get a yellow card, I'm not. But the extreme bravery of those players from Iran to to not sing, and I saw that one of them was actually quite worried about what was going to happen to his family in a report overnight. It is 18 and a half past five. We'll, we'll keep it there. The US is fielding one of the youngest teams at the Football World Cup returning to the sport's biggest stage for the first time in eight years. They drew their first match one all against Wales yesterday and faced group favourites England on Friday. The sport's popularity state side is pretty young too, but there's excitement about the team's potential for success now and in the future. Kate Fisher reports from Washington.
6: Chasing World Cup glory is no easy task, as the US team discovered on Monday when they lost a 1-0 lead to draw with Wales in their first match of the tournament. But with stars like Chelsea's Christian Pulisic and Juventus midfielder Weston McKennie on the US national team, there's plenty of potential in this young side. Football, or soccer as it's known in the US, continues to tackle the domestic market. Many fans stateside are excited by the direction the game is going. According to some estimates, it's overtaken ice hockey in popularity. Lee Eagle is a clinical professor at New York University's Tisch Institute for Global Sport. Most of the world has figured out for all these years, uh, the sport is so accessible. Uh, You can take a ball, kick it around and there's something exciting about that. Here in the States we're catching how important it is to community and how much the sport is really a part of the community that it exists in at every level. The generation of young talent has many believing that the US can become a consistent force on the footballing stage for years to come. And the current team also has youth on its side. The average age, just over 25. That's the second youngest in the tournament. And with the continued development of young talent across the country, many hope the team will only improve by the time the World Cup comes here to North America in four years' time. Ray Salvaguri is the director of coaching at Manhattan Soccer Club. About 1,400 players, boys and girls, ranging from under 8 to under 19, are currently passing through the system. He's been coaching here for around 25 years. He says the infrastructure for cultivating young talent is improving in the U.S.
2: In the past, there was a lot of like clubs that operated on their own island, and sometimes they were trying to keep their own players, you know, within them. And we had some good national team players that came out of that. Um, but I think if everyone buys into that concept of being collaborative and trying to get the best players to the national team, doesn't matter where they're from.
6: The goal is World Cup glory. Coaches here in the U.S. believe the groundwork is being laid to give the country's stars of the future. The best possible chance to succeed. It's
0: 21 past five, and Nathan Radity here at First Up on RNZ National. Coming up on the program, we speak to another New Zealand world champion. That's what we do here. And also, you may have noticed it was uh, quite weathery yesterday quite big weathery around a lot of new zealand that's why we will have mr philip duncan of weather watch coming up on the program trade me time now this week leonard powell spoke to millie sylvester about a couple of good causes and a dream house in christchurch he began by asking millie about the baduzzi long lunch on the haoraki Gulf.
7: This is a really special fundraising auction for a great cause. So what we have up for grabs is the chance for you to spend a day of luxury on the beautiful waters of the Hauraki Gulf with 20 of your closest mates. Now, this includes exclusive use of this absolutely stunning, pristine, 16-metre power cat, Savoy, which is Auckland's most popular luxury yacht charter. And its crew are going to take you around the Hauraki Gulf that allow you to explore. You can anchor wherever your heart desires. You've got the boat to yourself. You can swim around There's paddle boards. Or if you just want to hang around on one of the sunny decks with an icy cold beverage in hand, you can do that too. And then to add to this, The owner of Biduzzi, which is one of Auckland's best Italian restaurants, is going to be on board with his team, serving you a beautiful long lunch. But to really just make this auction absolutely incredible is that the auction is raising funds for a very special girl, a 14-year-old named Portia Rose Swan, who has been diagnosed with a cancerous brain tumour. And the listing is raising money to help fund some alternative treatment for her, so one, spectacular opportunity and experience, but also for an incredible, incredible cause.
8: Such a good cause, and it's pretty luxury, so if people are trying to really splash out, but also feel good about it at the same time, I suppose, it's, it's quite a nice excuse to get out there and and also support Porsche.
7: Absolutely. And so currently there's almost 200 Kiwi have this on their watch list, and the current bid is at $5,200. It closes on Sunday at 8 p.m. So, you know, even if you want to pop in a a wee message of support for Porsche in the Q&A, get online and check that one out.
8: Speaking of worthy causes, we've got the Trade Me Kindness store.
7: We know that the holiday season can be a really tough time for some, and so... We're really proud to partner with a range of charities every year just to make the season a bit brighter for some really deserving Kiwi. So this year we've partnered with Kids Can, Foster Hope and Women's Refuge and we have reopened our kindness store. So this is a store that's on our site and we've filled our virtual shelves with everything that these charities need. They've told us how they can best support their people and we've filled the store with all sorts of things so for example you know there's eight dollar coloring pencils and activity books for kids can or a twelve dollar lunch then there's a range of other things like a twenty dollar safe night for women's refuge so no matter what your budget may be there's something that you can purchase here to really help those kiwi who you know, are really struggling as we head into what is, for most of us, a really happy time of year.
8: And it feels like something that you could give to that family member who insists they don't want any presents. You could buy something on their behalf.
7: Absolutely. That's a great idea. And, you know, no matter what your budget is, you can, you can buy someone a gift. It's a win-win.
8: And we're finishing on another gigantic home in Christchurch this week. Tell us about it.
7: We are. So this is one really grand-scale home and garden being offered to the market for apparently only the second time in 75 years. Now, for those who aren't familiar with Ōtotahi and Christchurch, the Miravale suburb is a particularly beautiful and desirable suburb. And as soon as you see this listing and the images and the video that, that this has, you will know what I'm talking about. This is a very spacious and generous five bedroom three bathroom and three living room home now of course, being a mansion as I mentioned earlier, it also has a tennis court and a swimming pool and it is a huge, huge property. You enter the home through these like stunning French doors they 've got these beautiful window seats that you know really complement the character home that it is so if you imagine a big beautiful white weatherboard house with a navy blue roof. Tennis court, pool, sweeping driveway and and beautiful gardens. The home is set to be sold by auction in two weeks. So if we've piqued your interest, you can check it out on the site. It's number 72, Chapter Street.
0: That's Trade Me's Millie Sylvester. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. It's the day of our life we call the 23rd of November... Miley Cyrus is 30 years old today. That means a lot to many of you, I'm sure. Uh, also, two of our great uh, men's cricketers in New Zealand, Martin Snedden, 64 years old, and Bruce Edgar, 66. Bruce Edgar was my favourite. I used to try and bat like him. I held the bat up at the back. Except he could hit a ball, and I couldn't really see it very well, and I was terrible. Life magazine. Um, in 1936, Life magazine published its first issue, and it had been around as a uh, comedy magazine since 1883 and it was bought by Henry Lucci who went, nah, let's make it an all photographs news magazine and it went pretty well uh, so yes, that was Life magazine publishing its first big issue on this day in 1936 and in 1977 some special music appeared for the first time Oh, that'd make a good text tone, wouldn't it? Yeah, Close Encounters of the Third Kind opened in theaters. It was said that that film was partially responsible for saving Columbia Pictures from bankruptcy. How so? Well, it was made for nineteen point four million, and it made the studio three hundred and six point nine, and pulled them out of a massive hole. And also, science fiction fans, this day in nineteen sixty three, Doctor Who uh, appeared for the very first time on British television. William Hartnell was the Doctor in an episode called An Unearthly Child. The show originally ran from 19... 19- 1963 to 89. Then it went away and they tried to resurrect it in 95. It didn't quite go, but it relaunched in 2005. It's been made in Cardiff ever since. Um, didn't like that music when I was a kid. It used to freak me out. Also, they the big paper mache Daleks chasing them around, and I kind of thought, useless monster, you can defeat them by just running upstairs. There you are. And uh, that is uh, what happened uh, on this day we call the 23rd of November. I need you, dollar, dollar,
1: dollar, that's
0: McRae is with us from the business team. Kia Andrew. Andrew. G'day Nathan. Um, tell me about this, New Zealand facing a waning employment market. How so the waning?
9: Yeah, we, we know this because job ads have fallen for a second consecutive month. Now the figures from the job website Seek Show ads fell one percent uh, in October with listings down one point six percent over the the past three months, so less jobs out there are being you know being advertised but it 's still looking pretty good though they were still sixteen percent higher than a year ago now SIG's manager Rob Clark says the market remains tight despite some softness now its employment record for October shows many industries recorded a decline in job ads with hospitality and tourism down six percent uh, trades and services jobs uh, down three and jobs and shops and other consumer products are down uh, 4%, and these are the, the greatest contributors to that overall decline. Job ads and manufacturing, transport and logistics are up 1%, while information and communication technologies they recorded no change uh, during the month of October. Job numbers are fairly closely correlated to the unemployment level. I guess that's pretty obvious. Uh, These remained low, and as a consequence, uh, job numbers remained very high. Now, Rob Clark says numbers are dropping slightly off what was a peak in numbers, but still relative to the high levels set back in 2019, and these were historically high. So good news is there are lots of jobs out there just for the taking, really. Applications per job, but they increased 6%, a sign of a growing competition between job seekers. Uh, differences in regions, that's often always the case, isn't it? Uh, Auckland and Tasman recorded no change in job volumes in October. Manawatu and Marlborough, they recorded the greatest uh, month-on-month rise. It was up 11% in Manawatu and 9% in Marlborough. At the other end of the scale, uh, job ads in Gisborne were down a whopping 16%, while in the Bay of Plenty the volume decreased in October, it was uh, 7%. And really not surprisingly, uh, being able to work from home has become a real deal breaker. Deal breaker for many people. Is the, the most searched item on Seek's website. Uh, Seek says it continues. This continues to be seen as a must have in many roles in professional services. And people are also showing less caution about switching jobs, uh, particularly in the healthcare and medical roles. So applications per job increased twenty six percent month on month. Now Rob Clark says, early in the pa- pandemic. People were very cautious about moving on because they were you know, obviously concerned about job security. But he believes this is now gone and people are more confident about moving on from their workplace. And across the Tasman, things much the same. Job ads uh, also experienced some decline. Uh, they were down 3.7% in October. But that was still something like Forty four percent higher year on year. So really, Nathan, uh, low employment seems
0: to be one of the the few bright spots in the economy, and let's hope that continues. Yeah, it's good to have a lot of people working. Well, it's a great thing, really. So, just with these numbers dropping, then, because you know there's been many calls with industries going, oh, we need tons of migrant workers to come in. Does does that does I mean does does that mean that's less so that that's less needed?
9: No, there's still. Uh there's still a lot of job vacancies out there, hmm. and particularly in some of those industries we mentioned, like you know tourism, and we know about that, and uh, those sort of jobs that so we do need more people to come in or to fill those positions because there are less people out there in New Zealand, you know, New Zealand residents, less people are looking for jobs, so yeah. to fill those ones, those particularly crucial jobs.
0: Ah. to do it quickly you need to get them from overseas i guess okay great thank you very much andrew mcrae there you can hear more from the business team this morning on morning report at 1027 let's see how your new zealand dollar is being traded around the world currently it is 61.47 us cents 92.69 australian cents 59.81 euro cents 51.71 british pence 4.38 yuan and 86.8 japanese yen Mm, smells like victory. Last week, our very own world number 1 speed golfer Jamie Reed won the individual world speed golf championships in St Augustine, which is in which was in Florida. Then he went and backed it up by winning the team world cup with New Zealand partner Robin Smith. So speed golf is Exactly what you think it sounds like, your golf score combined with how many minutes it takes you to complete a round of golf. Jamie has just arrived home in Taranaki and I asked him how it feels to be the best speed golfer on the planet. It feels very good, especially after the heartbreak
8: I went through four years ago to come back with two world titles and bring it back to the family and my friends. It was a pretty cool moment yesterday when I came home, so over the moon with it.
0: Now, I know that you had a four-year plan. We'll get to that in a second. But Robin Smith, of course, I mentioned in the intro. When did you decide to team up with Robin?
8: Yeah, so Robin's only sort of taken up speed golf in the last 12 months. He's a pretty handy golfer. He plays off a scratch handicap, and he was um, a pretty good hockey player as well. And so his fitness was pretty sharp. So he came along to Fitzroy when we used to run some some Twilight speed golf series, and the scores were pretty good. So I said to him, we'll see how you go, New Zealand champs. And he did very well there. I think he came fourth. So I said to him, hey, look, if you want, let's go, over, let's go overseas and take on the world together. I've sort of given him a training program and he's been my, my little of apprentice I could say and he's put in some super hard work over time and we did, a, we did a pretty good job over there being able to take away the team's title together which we're very happy with.
0: Now I see that you are a, a qualified PE teacher and I'm hearing planning here which is a very teacher thing that happens. So you mentioned that heartbreak four years ago and you did speak on social media about your four year plan which obviously worked, it culminated in this world title. Can you break it down for, for everyone and tell us what was your four year plan going back there and how you made it work?
8: Obviously, speed golf is still quite a relatively new sport around the world. So I thought there was a a good opportunity there for me to sort of train as hard as I can while working full time as well and just see how how low you can sort of take the sport in terms of the scoring side of things. So for me, I've always come from a, a golfing background. I've been playing golf since I was about 10 years old, so for the last 21 years, Um, And I thought it was a good opportunity to sort of get better through my running. Although when I go away to tournaments, my running is actually normally the best time out of most people. I still thought there was tons of room for improvement. So sort of back four years ago, in terms of 10K times, I was probably running just under 40 minutes. Over a four-year period, I managed to get that down to 33 minutes. And so now, you know, I'm not just sort of five minutes faster than most people. A lot of people that I compete with, I can be up to 10 minutes faster. And if you're 10 minutes faster than someone else, that means that they have to be 10 shots better.
0: That's un- um, that's unreasonable. What a massive yeah, improvement. it which,
8: which, which makes a big difference, especially over a two-day tournament. If I can be 10 minutes faster than my nearest competitor, then that's 20 shots that they're going to have to make up. And for me, playing off a scratch handicap, obviously my golf's normally pretty good as well. There's not really any chance for them to, to make that up unless I have a, a really, really bad day. So your speed golf score is your time and your golf score added together. So the first day I shot 71, which was one under par in 43 minutes. I mean, I was leading by nine actually over Robin. And then the second day um, I managed to shoot 76. And forty-three minutes again. So, I ended up winning by by close to twenty in the end. So it was nice to not just go over there and win, but to go over there and just let everyone know that they're actually miles behind where I am now. And yes, I've sort of taken the sport to a taken the sport to a new level, which is pretty cool.
0: That's so good. I, I like this being extra organised. I was thinking as you were talking about that about this, and I thought, you know, you're running, you got to hit, and I thought it reminds me a little bit of that Winter Olympic sport, the biathlon, you know, where they're skiing and it's hard sure, out, please. and then they've got to stop and slow their breathing and, and take the shot and that. So I was wondering, too, with yourself and Robin, with Robin being a hockey player, does Robin do like a hockey shot, the run up and hit it on the move? Do either of you do that or do you actually is it best to stand and plant your feet and then hit? Yeah, I tell you what, if you
8: could do the happy gilmer move while playing speed golf and you were consistently good at it, that would make a, a massive difference and you'd probably be the best in the world by a mile. But obviously it's quite hard to hit a golf ball normally, but trying to hit a golf ball while moving as well is, is, is not very easy at all. So you do have to you run up to the golf ball. Well, this is what I do. I just run up to the golf ball, sort of take one or two deep breaths and I just Plant my feet and then, and then hit the golf shot like a normal person would do and then pick up my golf clubs and carry on running. So by the time I get to the ball and by the time I leave after my shot, I'm only sort of there for no more than five seconds before I'm back running
0: again. Then how infuriating now do you find, what do you, what do you call it, just slow golf, normal golf? You know, you know, yeah, the, yeah, when people yeah, stand golf, there and, golf, yeah. and they stand over the ball yeah. for like a minute and a half and look up and wiggle their bums and stuff, do you find yourself going, Chris, hold it, come on? That's it. uh, Yeah.
8: I think a lot of people would find that if they took away all that sort of stuff there, which is all the mental side of golf, which is why golf is so hard. It's It's a mental sport. But by the time you start running around and you're tired and you don't take your time, the mental side sort of goes away. Most people would be surprised actually how well they play their golf once they get rid of all of that. For me, in terms of like the slow golf, I mean, I just go out there with my mates and still play socially, which is the cool side of things there. But if I'm playing a slow golf tournament and there are people out there that are just taking forever and it's taken me four or five hours to play around a golfer, I do wonder, I do question myself at the end of it and go, what what was I doing out there? I could have been finished four hours ago. <laughs> could be home by now.
0: Now, our <laughs> producer, Leonard, who uh, likes to hit a ball, uh, he thinks you are uh, yeah. arguably a better golfer when running around the course than walking. Do you agree? And if so, what do you put it down to?
8: My long game, so from my like T to green, I find I play better when I'm running around a golf course. Short game, so you're chipping and putting is quite tough when you're running around because you don't have time to line anything up and stuff like that. My long game is definitely a lot better when I play when I play speed golf. And I think that just comes down to once again just not thinking, not overthinking. It depends on the golf course. I only play with three or four golf clubs. So when you get up to a shot, it might be say 150 meters. I've only got one club to use really, and that was normally my eight iron. Um, whereas if I'm playing slow golf, I'll be going, do I hit an 8-iron, do I hit a 7-iron, do I hit a 9-iron, don't know what to hit here. And then you get caught in between clubs and you do a poor swing and, and it's all over. So, yep, no, I think Leonard's correct there in terms of my, my fast golf is probably better than my slow golf, but I'm not
0: complaining. Speed golf world champion, Jamie Reed. I'm is 18 to 6, and I'm Nathan Rarere here at First Up on RNZ National. So Philip Duncan from Weather Watch will be with us soon as we, we have a look at how long this weather is going to hang around. Uh, very windy and wet uh, for a lot of people. And also, a really cool story. You might have heard about Ruby Tui giving away her World Cup winner's medal. We will speak to the young woman who received it. <laughs> The professionals of Morning Report are up after six, and you've got the magnitude of a football upset like Saudi Arabia and Argentina. We send up the bat signal, and it's like it's like the hill signal when we need something important. And Kim Hill is with us. Kia ora, Kim, how are you?
10: Weathered. I'm feeling weathered. You're weathered. What about I, you?
0: Yeah. We. Do you know what I was expecting to be more weathered yesterday, but it kind of seemed to split and just blow around us a bit where I live. So I was very lucky, but not so lucky as places that had trees falling over. Oh, goodness I me. Know.
10: Um, and as you say, Saudi Arabia beat Argentina in Qatar. Yeah. Momentous. It's amazing. I, Is it? w-
0: I saw a stat here. Uh, it's the first time in 92 years that Argentina's lost a World Cup game after leading at halftime. Uh, they'll then- be
10: feeling sick as parrots. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: Yes, and Saudi
10: Arabia will be over the moon.
0: Yeah, there'll be those. Much That much jumping for joy, I think.
10: Meanwhile, another much predicted official cash rate increase as the Reserve Bank continues to put the screws on. Stubborn inflation, we'll be looking at that this morning. We'll talk to the Auckland Council about when and why Pōhutukawa trees are protected. Mm. I mean, they're very nice and all, but... There are lots of them around,
0: right? Yeah, we have a lot of them where I live in Teatutu, where it looks out to the harbour with them. And then
10: they dig up the pavements, and, you know, all sorts of trouble. Why are we killing so many of each other and ourselves on the roads? The perennial question. And it's Wednesday. Uh, National Party leader Christopher Luxon is on the programme today. I think Corinne's going to ask him for some parenting advice.
0: Oh, that's good. (laughs) Just stick a little bracelet on them. Run on the ankle and you know where they are all the time. That's what you do. It's like what
10: you do, Nathan.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's like it's like the uh, you know the little harnesses. It's a bit like one of those. All right. Cool. As soon Thank as you very they much. get out
10: the cellar, they'll wreak their revenge upon you. <laughs> <Era> wingo. Ah. <laughs> See you later.
0: <laughs> Thank you very much, Kim Hill, who's here with Corinne Dan after six. Yeah. Um, as as Kim mentioned, it has been wet and windy. Uh, crazy time for weather there as well. Lots of lightning around. I saw. Um, joining me now to tell us what's in store from Weather Watch is our friend Philip Duncan. Kia ora, Man, how are you? Good morning, I am a little sleep deprived. Because you, you love the weather, like you run outside and stand in it and go yes, like that, so tell me about the wind, the rain, the lightning and all of it.
11: So yes, yeah, so the, the, the cold front moved across the North Island overnight, and that's the reason why we've been getting these big squalls, um, hail, and even isolated thunderstorms. That's uh, going to be pretty much the forecast for the next few days ahead, because we've got these storms down in the Southern Ocean, or at least low-pressure zones, and very windy westerlies elsewhere, and they'll be swinging around. Um, you know, from nor'westers to sou'westers and then there'll be long dry spells and then all of a sudden a big burst of rain and and really this is widespread across the country for the next few days. It's classic mid-spring kind of stormy stuff.
0: Now, uh, Aucklanders will want to know about the Harbour Bridge but I'll I'll, I'll just let the rest of the country know. I will ask about the rest of the country but tell us about that, you know, high winds going across there, thousands of travellers. Does it look dangerous? Do you think it might even be shut in
11: the next day or two? It's possibly, yes, because, you know, I actually don't support a lot of the times they close the bridge because they they sometimes close it for the wrong kind of wind, and this is the kind of wind that caused that incident where the truck hit, you know, the middle beam and it was all shut down for a while. It's these kind of squalls that can come through and just suddenly gust and a truck can sort of be blown over on, on an exposed place like the bridge. So, yes, it's possible, um, but hopefully the winds aren't going to get up too much more than where they've sort of already been overnight. But there will be localised strong gusts right across the country. They come out of the blue and that's when you can lose a tree or have your power cut, but actually just down the road they didn't have any problems.
0: Phil we've seen in New South Wales and we had the story last week which I thought was a repeat of the other two we've had you know where they've had huge flooding inland in there um, we've obviously had areas of New Zealand hit by flooding this year is there anywhere that perhaps looks like they might be in danger of getting so wet there's floods or slips uh,
11: the, the the North Island's pretty saturated now we've had a lot of rain um, but the general rainfall totals coming through it uh, over the next few days are very much western leaning. And to be honest with you, that the western side of the country copes with heavy rain events better than the eastern side does. So if we're talking 150 millimetres or so on the west coast over the next few days, that's just another day in the office for them. And in the North Island, uh, heavy squalls, yes, there could be some localised flooding and localised slips. And that just means, yeah, one downpour can cause one area of problems. But widespread problems not looking quite so likely. And speaking of Victoria, this unsettled pattern we've got now is actually connected to what they've had, to their very unsettled spring. We're only just catching part of it now.
0: Mm. Um, Lightning strikes are always an interesting thing for you. Did you you have a
11: bit of a look around? Has there been tons? Yeah, I mean, they've been tracking over the upper North Island quite a bit. Um, and places like Waikato have had quite a few thunderstorms. You're right about Auckland. It's split in half, and it's something that actually we were saying on social media last night. Uh, A lot of times thunderstorms look like they're about to roar into Auckland, but the way Northland juts out further to the west, it breaks up the airflow, and so you can have thunderstorms widespread across Northland and Waikato and Auckland with one and a half million people all sitting there going, "Um, I thought we were getting some of this, (laughs) but it can just split apart just at that last minute
0: yeah uh Philip, give me thirty seconds uh tell us rest of the week when does this finish?
11: It really doesn't finish till we get into the weekend We're, It's not necessarily going to be stormy nonstop. But it'll come in surges, and there'll be surges today where it's quite dry and maybe not too dramatic, and then maybe tonight the rain comes back and tomorrow there's another surge of strong winds. And it gets colder later in the week. There's a Mm. cold surge for Southland and Otago. Um, They've got pretty low temperatures this weekend. In fact, Dunedin might even struggle to get to 10 degrees on Sunday, or some parts of Southland might do in Otago. So definitely some colder weather on the way. It is spring. We do get unsettled changes like this. Um, And then hopefully it will be calming down a wee bit more next week. Wonderful. Thank you
0: very much. Philip Duncan there from Weather Watch. It is 826. The 11-year-old leukaemia survivor who was gifted Ruby Tui's World Cup winner's medal says that she's been sleeping with it under her pillow. Lucia Hurst met Tui at a fan engagement event prior to the World Cup final, during which her dad told the Black Fern star about Lucia's health battle. And after the Ferns' epic victory, Ruby Tui, who was doing a lap of the crowd, spotted Lucia in the crowd and placed her medal around her neck and insisted that she kept it. Our producer Matthew Tunison caught up with Lucia and her dad David at Northcote Birkenhead Rugby Club to find out what the gesture has meant to them.
12: They, they play with more freedom. Yes. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Like a festival of rugby as opposed to the intensity
0: of. I
2: met Lucia and David at Northcote Birkenhead Rugby Union and Sports Club, a classic old school venue that's about as grassroots as they come. It's a little over a week since the Black Ferns in England produced one of the all time great games of
12: rugby, men's or women's. And we're all still buzzing. It was epic. I mean, I'd have to say overall, it was kind of like a fairy tale, right? Didn't, you know, let's face it, England were favourites. And it was just, I hugged the stranger standing next to me at the end of the game. (laughs) Um, He was there with his family, and it was just epic. Wearing her North Harbour
2: Seahawks tag football uniform, Lucia proudly wears the gold medal gifted to her by one of the World Cup's top performers and one of rugby's great characters, Ruby Tui. Her dad, David, recalls what happened that incredible
12: night. I was trying to get Lucia to go back to the car where her brother had been waiting for an hour mm-hmm. uh, and was calling me on his phone every couple of minutes. And it was probably quarter to 11 at night. They were starting to turn the lights out and there were still heaps of fans there. Yeah. And a lot of the players were still up in the grand, you know, just talking to yes. family and friends. and. You tell the
1: story <laughs> and then i saw ruby toy because my friend wanted to get a photo with her and then she saw me and gave me a hug and um, i was and then she like took everything off and i was like confused what did you think
12: she was gonna
1: get? she had like a lolly necklace on so i thought i was just <laughs> gonna get like a thing or one like lolly <laughs> and then she gave me the medal
2: wow what was your how did you react to that
1: I started crying.
2: Earlier in the week, Lucia and David had met Tui at a fans
12: event where they got talking about the 11-year-old's health battle. We were chatting about Ruby's book, weren't we? Yeah. Because a friend of mine, his wife, is reading it. I haven't read it yet. I will. And um, I just suggested that maybe we'll have to get Lucia to read it. Yeah. Ruby suggested that wasn't a great idea so <laughs> started, right. started to have a I guess just open the conversation around sort of hardships and yes. some of the little, little lens into things and it just came up that Lucia went through a bit of a journey herself yes. about five, six years ago and um, yeah Lucia uh, was diagnosed with leukaemia when she was nearly four mm. just or three three something. Three and a half. Three and a half thank you. Three
1: years older than 11 months actually.
12: <laughs> oh is that, what, okay very good um, it's one of those things that's a journey, isn't it? And there's, um, I mean, I remember a good mate of mine at the same time was going through a, a much tougher battle with his son. <clears throat> and I remember him saying, There's always someone worse off. You know, and, and there really mm. there was. And, um, but, you know, the team at Starship are next level. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's, we had an amazing outcome. Lucia smashed every phase of the treatment pretty much. Little journey along Chemo the way. And all of that. All oh, of that. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, um, you know, we we're fortunate we didn't have to go down the bone marrow transplant. So, yes. you know, we saw kids having a really, really tough time around us, didn't we? The story
2: resonated with Ruby Tui, whose new book, Straight Up, chronicles a childhood marred by drugs and domestic violence. But the day after the final, Lucia became concerned that Tui may be regretting giving up her priceless medal. So she and her dad went to the Black Ferns Hotel to give it back. But
1: she still didn't want it back.
2: So you've got it and she really wants you to have it. <laughs> looking it. You're looking after it, eh, yeah. Lucia? You're looking after it. And what do your mates think about it?
1: They thought it was really cool and when I got back to school, everyone started talking about it because I was everywhere.
2: What do we, where do you keep it? Do you have a special place for it?
1: Mm, I put it in a bunch of places.
2: Do you like to wear it? Where has it been this
1: week? (laughs) Under my pillow.
2: Lucia gave Tui her Player of the Year trophy and one of her Cancer Survivor beads in return for the medal. Northcote Birkenhead Rugby Union and Sports Club President Simon Williamson says they've been seeing an increase in women and girls signing up to play rugby in the last five years or so.
13: We've got 390 junior players here at Northcote, and a quarter of them are now girls, young women, who are growing into the game, and um, so that's a great statistic, but we're going to see more. You can understand this is an inspirational uh, World Cup uh, winning team and this unselfish act has just epitomizes what they represent.
2: The club is currently seeking sponsors or funders to build dedicated women's changing rooms and toilet facilities to accommodate the surging demand. Yeah, we run, run a pretty active website and we're starting
13: to see inquiries already for next year. Uh, players, uh, budding players, not just girls, boys yeah. who want to join yeah. and and join in. I mean that team were inspirational. Yeah.
2: yeah. I, I, I guess it's quite an important time for women's rugby because they do have that, there is that momentum, it's got to sort of capitalise on it now, how, does, how do you see that playing out? Oh look, this is um, something
13: NZRFU and North Harbour Union and other unions have already understood and recognised and they are heavily promoting Women's rugby. Mm. And I think, you know, this is just an example. This latest World Cup uh, journey uh, has been on the back of at least five years of great g- growth uh, for girls and women's rugby in New mm. Zealand. So we're going to continue to see that.
2: But the let's face it, the
13: last, the World Cup has just
12: taken it to
2: yeah. such a different mm. level. Yeah. Yeah. It's been mm-hmm. phenomenal. It's awesome. Can you believe, Lucia, that I, when, when I was your age, Hardly any girls used to play rugby. That's silly, isn't it?
1: Yes, very.
2: (laughs) Ruby Tui was named the Breakthrough 15s player at Monday's World Rugby Awards. She was also presented with another World Cup medal to replace the one she gave to Lucia, who she said was an inspiration.
0: That was Matthew Tunison. Thank you very much for tuning in to First Up today. The Saudi Arabian coach is the most handsome man in the world. From all of us here at First Up, have a wonderful day. We'll be back in your ears. Ah, Paw. That's true. Google him. Honestly, Google him.